I wanted to warn you too, I have a fair amount of, I think, interesting things to say about the movie. So you're just calling the podcast Essential New Orleans Cinema, right? I take the title to be a, more of a question than an assertion. It's not about ranking. It's not trying to create a canon of good films and bad films. It's not supposed to be that kind of thing. It's The idea of it is that it's supposed to be more like an inquiry. Like, does this work? How does it work? Right. Does it work for you? Does it work for the city? What kind of What kind of city does it represent? Is it something we can learn from moving forward? I'm always trying to balance the conversation with an eye toward the future because the the larger scale purpose of the podcast is to inspire new work and to get people thinking and creatively stimulated you know right. but that's why i always have a, an artist guest of uh, in the film arena speedy speedy's uh, allergic to dog hair that's my joke oh dear uk bubba it's it's allergy season i'm gonna warn you in advance i'm gonna compliment you yeah, no, I, I, I get, I know how these things work. You have to, everybody has to be very special and wonderful who appears. Oh, yes, my notes. My notes. So I'll just do a quick introduction and, and then turn it over to you. Uh, okay. Um, hello and welcome to Essential Nola Cinema, a podcast about New Orleans movie making by New Orleans filmmakers. I'm here today with actor, performer... DIY producer. DIY producer, writer, I assume. Occasional drag queen, yes, <laughs> writer and director. Towering pillar of the local theater community, Michael Martin. Hi. How's it going? It's good. Thank How's you. the global pandemic treating you? Actually, it it's fine. On a day-to-day basis, it's fine. As soon as you think five minutes into the future, it's not so good. But on a, on a moment-to-moment basis, it's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's fine until it isn't. This is the first ENC recorded live. We're in the same room, socially distanced, on separate microphones. It's like a very special episode. So like, <laughs> oh God! I what, hope what, that's what not we true. get is what we get. <laughs> um, Michael brought the Sons of Tennessee Williams to the table today, which is a 2015 documentary about the evolution of the gay Mardi Gras crew scene. Um, the Sons of Tennessee Williams is, a, is an interesting doc because it's made entirely out of archival footage and with contemporary interviews with the people in that archival footage. So in a way, it tracks several specific people over the course of well, almost 50 years from the 60s and the turnover from D.A. Um, Garrison into Harry Connick Sr., which is a, seems to be a massively pivotal moment in the history of, of the New Orleans gay community a turn from near daily persecution into a mode of least on the police level tolerance. It's, it's got, it's, there's so much to unpack with it because it's doesn't give you a ton of context. And this is where I have a lot of questions for you today because like, Oh boy, (laughs) I'd, I'd never even heard of these crews for starters. And I was really interested, but I also kind of wanted to know more. They may have been assuming a lot of cultural understanding going in. All right, I'm already on the spot because I'm no historian of um, New Orleans <laughs> culture in general or even the New Orleans gay culture specifically. Uh, the movie um, does cite the crew of Yuga, 
uh, as the first gay crew, which I had never heard of before seeing Tim Wolfe's film, this, uh, The Sons of Tennessee Williams, is essentially Tim Wolfe's baby. It's very plain that he did all of the heavy lifting in creating it and conducting the interviews and editing the footage. But I had not heard of Yuga prior to seeing The Sons of Tennessee Williams. It was shut down within the first year or two of its existence by a police raid. And the people, once they picked themselves up and dusted themselves off, went back in to City Hall and incorporated... Incorporated isn't the right word... But they established a legal basis for their crew, whatever that is, bylaws, whatever that is. You have to file with the city to become a Mardi Gras crew. The police raids continued, at least occasionally, with those newly formed crews um, after Yuga's demise. But none of them seemed to have struck death blows. The various crews that existed over the years from the late 50s and early 60s till today suffered more what you would have expected them to suffer, loss of young membership, um, Katrina, the AIDS crisis in the 80s, all of those were more decisive to the expansion or contraction of the gay crews than the police were. Um, But it did, as Randy said, it didn't really stop until sometime in the 70s, sometime after Connick won the race against Garrison. And that was another historically interesting bit, which, again, I was not aware of until I saw it. Um, I have never quite understood. Connick, as Randy said, was apparently the first city official to come and solicit the gay community's support during the course of his campaign. And the movie doesn't argue that the gay community's support was decisive, but it certainly was a big deal. And it was the first time that a mainstream politician had solicited the support of the community as a community. So they they put their backs into Connick's election, and he did get elected. And it goes a long way towards me understanding why he's still a, a well-regarded figure among um, older generations of the community, even though he's proven to be so controversial in other areas of his career. How am I doing so far? You're doing fine. <laughs> Great. You, you referred to me in the third person, which I thought was an interesting choice. Well, I don't know who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> We're not on the radio or, or whatever. The audience is just eavesdropping on our conversation. I so see. Okay, I'll stop talking about you in the third person. Uh, Randy, right over there, sitting right in front of me. I'm not real well qualified to discuss The Sons of Tennessee Williams as a movie. Um, you are... Or Randy is. Well, I'm not a documentarian. No, but you are a filmmaker. And in the world of film, I meant meant most an actor. I've never occupied any other seat. What impressed me most about the movie as a movie is how much work Mr. Wolf plainly put into making it kind of lyrical is not too strong a word. Making it lyrical, making it flow 
inserting a lot of imagery and snatches of music and uh, artistry that the storytelling really didn't require. Um, he had he had fabulous archival footage of the cruise balls and very good street footage of old carnival parades, even dating prior to the 50s. Um, he had good archival footage of the men that he was interviewing, still photos and videos both. And it could easily have been simply, here's some splendid old footage, and here are the men today answering Talking Heads interviews. And Tim Wolf did a great deal more with it than that. Yeah. It's funny, in the documentary community of New Orleans, there's one towering figure who looms over a fellow named Tim Watson, who's got an editing, co-editing, assisting editing, extra editing credit on just, I think, almost every documentary I've ever seen in the city. Okay. The man is tireless and, and apparently likes to help first-time filmmakers, and huh. he was the co-editor or uh additional editor on this film oh i'm sure he must have helped a lot then yeah and I, I was really impressed with that archival footage in terms of just it's not easy to get footage at all from the pre-video days it was just so hard to film anything you'd have to understand how to load magazines and you'd have to have you know a projector at home and know how to process it and all kinds of it was just really difficult people weren't just running around with super eight cameras and, and stuff so the fact that the subjects of the doc had filmed all this stuff in the in the 60s is this really amazing window into yeah. life back then. Yeah. Especially some of the stuff of, what is Miss Dixie's Bar? Miss Dixie's Bar is something I had actually heard of that is a legend that had reached my ears prior to seeing this film. So it's on the corner of St. Peter's and Bourbon, right? So That, that sounds right. I call that the Four Balconies Corner. Yeah, it's the... I don't know what's there now. Through the 60s, at least, um, uh, Miss Dixie's was the watering hole for gay men and who were leading double lives, who were leading secret lives. It was where you went. It's interesting. I wonder if the sort of gay section of Bourbon Street begins abruptly at St. Anne now, and I wonder if it had been pushed kind of up the street a bit over the years, you know? That's possible. I, I, I've never heard anything to that effect. Or maybe I, it was more integrated back in the day, yeah, you know? Yeah. I, I've never heard anything to that effect, but it, I, it, I'd be more likely to suspect normal economic forces rather than a deliberate effort to push them. I mean, what difference yeah, no. is yeah. two or three blocks going to make? Just you never underestimate just the force of changing mores. You know, conducting your life in secret became significantly less necessary after the 70s, um, certainly by the 80s. And so places where you could hide and be yourself became less necessary as well. My brain just went to three places at once, so sorry. I just no, it's all right. <laughs> um, it, the Confederacy of Dunces has a, a giant subplot that ends, turns into basically the climax of the novel around the French Quarter's gay community. Right. And my osmosis impression I've gotten from the 15 years I've been here is that New Orleans has always been a bit of a laissez-faire mecca where people didn't necessarily, they, they didn't have necessarily this societal pressure to live double lives within certain parameters, so to speak. Right. It's interesting to me, it's like you, you dig down a little bit through the history and there always seems to be a, a little bit of a cultural civil war in the city happening between a let your freak flag fly downtown where there's really low cost of living, where 
you know, I call it America's orphanage, where every weirdo from every who didn't fit in anywhere else in the country can come and find themselves. And we're talking huge amounts of artists um, coming together in, in all kinds of unexpected ways and and so on. And then you have a sort of conservative, I mean, I would like to believe it's all, all outside the parish line, but of course we know it's not, that there's a conservative element in the city as well. But then, you know, we're the blue dot in this red state thing, this this Creole city, what I've heard called the northernmost Caribbean port town, right? as opposed to a southern American yeah, that's city, a, that's stuck a good in this white conservative state. And that cultural push and pull has seems to exist in every chapter of the city's life that, that I've found, although I, I can't speak for the 1700s or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, it seems to have always been there. Um, I'm curious how you... You're you're not uh, born and raised native, right? No, you, you... I moved here in 2002. Okay, so, great. What's, what's your how you, what's your path here? How did? Gosh, it lines up with what you're saying. Uh, I had I need to keep this brief. I had grown up in Minneapolis, uh, kind of Roseanne style, poor white suburban trash, poor, and uh, did not really leave the confines of Minnesota, but once through my 20s. A couple things in my personal life happened to prompt this. I realized that if I ever wanted to get out and see the country uh, without much money to do so, uh, that if you go bumming around in your 20s, you're a kid on a lark. But if you go bumming around on your 30s, people think you're really a bum. So... I blew out with like $500 when I was 29. Just got in under the wire. Yeah, just got it in under the wire. And my route was primarily determined by where I knew people who would put me up. Um, uh, So it was a very erratic, weird route around the country, including Corpus Christi, Texas, and Washington, D.C., and Knoxville, Tennessee, and such like, because those just happened to be places where I could find sofas. And it also included, most notably, Chicago and New Orleans, which were the two of the cities that I fell in love with. I tried to settle in New Orleans first uh, as part of that same trip after about four or five months on the road. On the road. On the Greyhound bus. No hitchhiking? No. No. It wasn't that adventurous. It was kind of past hitchhiking's heyday. Uh, the town whipped my ass and sent me home. I had to call mommy for the emergency bus ticket. And I went home for two or three years, licked my wounds, came back to New Orleans when I was 34. The town whipped my ass a second time. (laughs) Were these Mardi Gras (laughs) ass whippings? (laughs) These were... Uh, you're unemployed and have no place to live and uh, 10 bucks in your pocket away from sucking cock in the French Quarter for loose change ass whippings. These were like, yeah, we're, yeah. This is this is not a town for the defenseless. Interesting. Yeah. If they, I mean, they call it the Big Easy because it's... That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah that's that, that's <laughs> always been ridiculous. It's a easy place to visit. It's a very hard place to live. Anyway, to finish my biography, I went went back home a second time. The third time I left home, I'm messing up the timeline a little bit. But the third time I left home, I decided to try Chicago rather than New Orleans, and that worked. That was the right 
throw weight for me, and I lived there for 10 years until I was old enough to return to New Orleans and not quite get, be so readily getting into trouble as I was in my 20s and 30s. And were you were you acting, performing the whole way? Only once you... I, no, oh, no, I didn't really start acting until I got to Chicago. I really did not make much of my time in my 20s. I, I didn't pick my life until I was in my mid-30s. Because Chicago is, I mean, it's one of the great theater towns. Yeah, ever. and there I did a lot. But I, again, I did not I did not start in my 20s. I wasn't acting while I was traveling. Right. You know, I, I started building an adult life once I got to Chicago. I lived there for nine years, and then Eric and I came here. Oh, you, you, you did you meet him in Chicago? I did meet him in Chicago. Oh, wow. Yes, okay. yeah, we met in Chicago. Uh, he... Uh, he is a Southern boy. Uh, the only reason he was in Chicago was because that was where his career was. He was one of those guys who would go into the house in November and not come back out until April unless there was a running car waiting for him. He just couldn't bear the winter. <laughs> it's like a hibernating bear. Yeah, yeah. So Chicago was a bad match for his temperature preferences. And I just found and still find, as everybody does, New Orleans unique in the country. It just is, there is, it is one of a kind. Mm. Um, to say the least. Yeah. There were other, we were in the housing market down here. We could afford property down here. We couldn't afford it in Chicago. There were a couple of other reasons as well. Primarily, it was, you know, still my first choice for home. I just was too young or too immature to do it when the first times I tried to do it. And uh, Eric was totally ready to be somewhere else than Chicago. So, so did you have people in New Orleans to show you the ropes, or no? You just came. I just no. At the end of you've been visiting. Well, we're Off getting really into the weeds here. <laughs> we made the decision to move here in '99, and me being kind of feckless, and also by that time I had been in Chicago long enough that people were starting to offer me interesting projects, and it was hard to say no to. Uh, I was getting a little bit of a small circle reputation that although the decision to move was made in 99, we didn't actually make the move until 2002. People in Chicago teased me about my endless farewell tour, <laughs> but we just kept delaying. I mean, it worked for sure. Yeah, we just kept delaying the departure. But uh, but that three-year de delay did mean that I had time to research the city up sideways, back and forth, and I made a lot of online connections and did a lot of online research before we set our bags down here. The reason I'm asking for this context, I mean, that, it's also because I've, I've never sat down and talked to you about yeah. this before. I mean, That's a complicated As story. a person, but my experience is that I, I came here basically sight unseen to hang out with a very old friend at a time where I uh, needed somebody who was, who was like family because I just lost my family. And mm -hmm. the Mardi Gras just kind of hit me like uh, Wiley Coyote getting hit by a train when yeah. he was from the right while he was looking left or whatever. I just didn't know what was happening. And it's come up on a lot of these conversations about the sort of love-hate relationship people have with Mardi Gras. Some people are all about it. I mean, it's almost like a year-round thing for them. Crew memberships are like country clubs. Right. Um, into the, that kind of mentality, I find, where it's very much a sort of caste system where everyone's talking about. But it's also like a an auspices for drama, 
because you have hierarchy and it's a lot of volunteers and there's always money and dues and mm -hmm. there's all kinds of reasons for people to get butthurt. And they have different people who wield authority with different levels of competence and grace and so on. And I mean, I, I'm thinking of Nix at the moment because of that whole thing. How Nix has gone down in flames. Oh, Nix. Yes, that uh, that's an interesting story even to me and I don't know damn thing about Nix. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I've been following that. And so it's interesting to me, I mean, watching Sons of Tennessee Williams, how the importance of the validity of the crew makes uh, complete sense on a just basic self-preservation level as an oppressed minority with this police force raiding them all the time and publishing their names in the papers mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. Seeing how the Times-Picayune was complicit in this oppression made my stomach turn because I'm a former journalist and like... Mm -hmm. They're, they're supposed to hold the press to a higher standard, and they were simply an instrument of public shaming right. in that era, right. which is just unconscionable. Well, um, they weren't the only ones. Yeah, and so the fact that you have this population forced to lead double lives being outed in the paper after the result of these r ridiculously arbitrary mm. raids on you know absurd morals charges, mm. the fact that they were able to use Mardi Gras cover to legitimize themselves was fascinating to me because it's kind of outside of the story of how Zulu was formed. It's the, mm. one of the few times I've ever heard of a crew being formed for really a righteous and clever reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to stop on that just for a second and then go on to actually address what you're asking or talking about. I wish someone with... In fact, I may see if I can find someone. I wish someone with the cultural and historical chops to do so competently would do a comparison of the histories of Zulu, which is much older, and the histories of gay crews and, and how they each serve the self-preservation uh, purposes of the groups who founded them because it just it's it's fascinating to me. And it's not what Sons of Tennessee Williams is about, and it might even be offensive to try to compare the histories of the two different marginalized groups. But holy hell, it would be interesting. And this is me. This is not the movie. The one thing that I come back to again and again as an explanation the essential explanation for New Orleans' enduring mystique, let's go with that, is the sense of license, the sense of permission. The cost of having that permission is, you know, by and large, grinding poverty and miserable weather. And uh, although it doesn't seem so much that this is the case during the pandemic, insanely bad politics and, you know, ownership by the extraction industries, the oil and gas and cancer industries. And in exchange for putting all up with all of that, uh, utilities that don't work. <laughs> infrastructure. Infrastructure from, you know, a bubblegum machine. Um is that you get to do what you want. The, 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 I, I don't know that I'm leading to a point here. I, when, I was, when I was still waiting tables, it's been a, thankfully a piece of time now because I stopped being good at it, and I kept doing it for a couple of years after I stopped being good at it. But, um, you know, people would ask me for, you know, well, where should we go, what should we see, and 
There was one night uh, I was chatting up a particularly lively crowd at Irene's, and one of the women said, well, what do you think people come here for? And I said, well, I think they don't come for the food or the music or the architecture or the river or anything else. I think they come to get in a memorable but manageable amount of trouble. <laughs> you know, they they don't want to spend the night in the OPP, but they do want to get into enough trouble to have a good story to tell when they're sitting in their rocking chair. That's so funny. Yeah. That's exa- <laughs> I, first of all, I want to repeat that because that, that was just perfect. A, a memorable and manageable amount of trouble. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a one of the like a hip hop lyric from Hamilton or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. That that is what the city is for. That should be on the license plate. So. <laughs> <laughs> come to Louisiana for a memorable but memorable. Well, I mean New Orleans. New Orleans. After yeah, we blow the bridges down, right. and become our own fiefdom or whatever. <laughs> but I, I to your point, I think that whole idea of taking that memorable and manageable amount of trouble back to the mm. city to tell the story later mm. is one of the big Eureka moments I had in the city and led directly to the creation of Laundry Day was First, it was the observation, like, wow, people are really good storytellers here. And then yeah. then it was the second observation, oh, so much of these good stories are in- incidents that happened that they stumbled into that were in the street, that are in the kind of public spaces, bars, or uh, outside music clubs, or on stage, or whatever. And then it occurred to me that, like, people basically come here, and their tourism money is spent to create stories, because mm-hmm. what I call the homogenization of America, the loss of, like, unique regional culture in this country by the Walmarts and strip malls and so forth, the the mass corporate takeover of the country that has just eroded. Every city now seems to have like a three-block historical district where everyone takes a walking tour for 15 minutes, and then it's like, let's go to Applebee's or whatever afterwards. And I think the hunger, the feeling of alienation that's created in people where let's say they're a regular nine to fiver and they, you know, like Friday's karaoke night and Tuesday is watching or Sunday's watching Game of Thrones night or whatever they're doing, they're doing it in this like consumerist pattern that is just not fulfilling any kind of feeling of, of community and community is like deep in our ancestral DNA. I mean, community is how we survived our early days as a species. Mm-hmm. And the alienation from the sense of community created by modern capitalism is part of what drives people to New Orleans. I think it's it's like uh, it's it's they people come here and they they come away and they feel closer to their friends and they feel bonded and they feel like they've been in like touch with something deep and they laughed most of the time when they weren't crying or being yeah. robbed or whatever and they have great stories even if they're getting robbed they sometimes get great stories out of that right. you know? and it's something primordial and there's that that feeling of like oh the stories we tell are such a vital fabric in this, this the churn of downtown, especially the quarter Marigny, kind of French Quarter St. Claude areas are so rife with the churn of interesting kinds of people mixing and I, I've always loved border towns, border communities, place places where the brackish water of cultures coming together have always been my favorite places. Um it's I think why I've always kind of spent most of my time in the city downtown is because every bar that I like to hang out in is like quasi, it's a multi-hyphenate kind of bar. It's like a, look down the stools, there'll be two bikers arguing about Motorhead next to 
um, a gay couple having an anniversary next to the bartenders, like three boyfriends next to two tourists mm-hmm. from Cincinnati wearing beads out of season and holding hand grenades, like who are confused because they're looking for the Katrina Museum, which mm-hmm. doesn't exist, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. And that melting pot quality of like, normally there'd be like a gay bar or a biker bar or a tourism bar, but suddenly all of these cultures are clashing and they're all forced to interact with each other in this interesting way. You have service industry, the stripper, uh, sex worker culture, you have the musicians. They're all forced to negotiate and come to terms with each other's people and as fellow members of their communities. Like, no one is allowed to stay in a bubble here. Yeah. Or at least in the areas that I like to hang out in. And that, that is where the great clashes come in, the great stories come out of. And I think it's also where we learn about ourselves and when we learn about the broader worlds, you know. And so in a way, like, New Orleans, for all its unhealthiness on a physical level is super healthy, you know, emotionally and spiritually. Well, I hope so. Compared to Cincinnati. No offense, Cincinnati. (laughs) My dad's from Cincinnati. One of the things that was most interesting to me about Sons of Tennessee Williams, and I, it goes to what you're talking about, although kind of by the side door. And again, I think that this is probably me bringing something to the table rather than something that was already prepared sitting there, I listen to it very closely because it's in its promotional material, uh, its presentation of itself. It talks very much about the establishment of the gay crews in the 60s as linked to the larger, perhaps even a motor of the larger gay civil rights movement. There it is very much part of the argument that it makes for itself. And if you listen carefully to the film, and no disrespect intended to the film, it's quite lovely as it is, that's just not there. Stonewall is name-checked. The AIDS crisis in the 80s is name-checked. The Reagan years... Katrina is a little bit more than name-checked. But the connective tissue between the gay experience in New Orleans and the gay experience in other cities and in the culture overall is never presented. And I think it's never presented because it doesn't really exist. Mm. Um, and that again I want to emphasize that's probably me bringing my prejudices to the table I wonder if it's that was an honest mistake or if it was just a question of focus perhaps I don't think it's either an honest mistake or a question of focus I think you just want to be able to tell people who you hope will consider looking at your movie that something that they want to hear in order to get them to look at it I, New Orleans has a heart, and I'm not talking about the gay community here um, specifically. I'm, I'm talking about the city as a city, or the state of mind as a state of mind. New Orleans has a hard time copping to its insularity. Mm. We are a closed system. <laughs> yeah. That, we are a closed system. That and, statement pulled me up because I love the insularity. That's my favorite yeah, part of the city. Uh, but then when it comes to justifying our existence, 
<laughs> Again, I'm speaking in very broad terms no. but, uh, or generic. But when it comes to justifying our existence, we feel that we have to point to, oh, we've had a big influence over here or we're very connected over here or we're a significant part of this history right here. We're not. <laughs> we're we're not. We're a little island of insularity uh, and license. That's so interesting. And yeah. and most of the progress or lack of progress, most of the forward motion or the backward motion that the the country and the community and the cultures have experienced as a whole has nothing to do with us, and we had nothing to do with it. Yeah, no, and, exactly. And, and I, I, again, I love that. That's I my think we thing. may as well admit it. <laughs> um, yeah. We're, we're, we're not a key player in the history of the gay civil rights in America. We're just not. <laughs> um, it's so funny because there's, I just thought of all this, um, you know, Ken Burns' jazz documentary talks extensively about the life of Louis Armstrong, who mm. was obviously born and raised here, uh, was an orphan, was on the streets, was taken into a Jewish home, wore a Star David on his neck until he died. But he couldn't make a living, really, until want, he moved to New York and Chicago. If you want to have, if you are egotistical enough or confident enough, whatever you want to call it, vain enough, um, crazy enough, to think that you have something to say that the world needs to hear, you can't say it from here. You mm. can't say it from here. It will not. The new. I mean, no, no metaphor is perfect. But I'll, I'll go to this. What makes New Orleans special in so many people's hearts is that it doesn't connect to the rest of the world, and yeah. and we may as well stop claiming that we do. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's it's like culture. It's trend proof. It's it's fad proof. It doesn't. It doesn't have these clear, you know, you look at a, you, you show a random photo from the Times Picayune or from anybody's like scrapbook from, and there, unless you can tell by the quality of the paper the photo's on, you can't tell what era it's from really, you right. know. Um, right. Like there's a, a deep cultural persistence here that has resisted American influence, yeah. you know. And I think that a lot of that's the historical protectionism of the architecture and the zoning has done a lot to basically discourage predatory capitalists. Uh, it hasn't been very successful. Well, let's just we've lost all. We, been, I know what you, you mean. Know, yeah. I do know what you mean. <laughs> but we've lost ninety percent of our historically important jazz buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Hard Rock Hotel is sitting on like yeah. a civil rights monument. But... In strictly the acting terms, I do not remember who first said this to me. Um, but when I first came to New Orleans 2002 again, and as I say, I'd made some introductions prior to my arrival. There were a few people I knew by email at the time, not by social media, to have a cup of coffee with. And I, I, I just can't even tell you how often, well, I can't, I, three times. Three times in the first two or three months I was here, because, and I was not any sort of, you know, name performer coming out of Chicago. I'd simply worked there for eight or nine years in a fairly small pool. And I can't, three times I heard variations of why would you come to this backwater? Hmm. From people who lived here and from people who were making art here. 
These were not office workers. These were other artists. Why, why would you come to this backwater? And I will admit, I didn't say it in my original statement, but it was part of my motivations. I'd had a couple of setbacks in Chicago. There was one solo show up there that I did in particular, which I thought was going to be my best ever work. And as it turns out, it wasn't. I subsequently did better work. But but it was very good. And I toured it. I didn't tour them. I toured it to a couple different cities, and I lost thousands of dollars. And I, at that point, had been doing it long enough that I didn't throw a major tantrum. Um, but I did say, all right, you're not going to ever break through commercially. You're just, that's not what you do. So if you're doing it for love rather than for money, you can do it from anywhere. A big reason for my, and again, it still took me three years to fold up my tent, but a big reason for me wrapping it up in Chicago and coming down here, besides preferring to be here, is that I gave up on my professional ambitions. And I continued making work, but I just didn't think, I, I gave up thinking I was ever going to make a living at it. That's so interesting, because you're, you're the most prolific performer in the city as far as I can tell yeah but I I you know I clean I clean things I don't make a living at it no yeah I know it's interesting yeah the, the economics thing. yeah putting that aside for a sec though I wanted to one of the things I admire most about you is your that you have such you never stop trying you don't you're not one of those like once a year do a thing kind of people that there are a lot of in this town where they they have sort of like one signature production and, that, and that's mm -hmm. kind of all they do. You have a an openness to going out for things that would not seem like um, the uh, an obvious fit or whatever. And you, <laughs> and, and you go for every kind of medium, like music videos, theater productions, drag. I, I every have aspect a, of theater is I uh, have got a, your fingerprints on it. I have a very low amusement threshold. <laughs> I, I just. <laughs> I, I do want to try to, I don't want to talk about myself more than I absolutely have to. <laughs> Sometime in the transfer from Chicago to New Orleans, I don't remember if it was here or there, but but somebody knowledgeable said to me in vis-a-vis -vis the different tone of, between the cities, they said, Chicago is where you go if you want to master your craft as perfectly as you can. Los Angeles is where you want go if you want to make money. New York is where you go if you feel that you need to speak to the world. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If, if you, in New Orleans, not on that list. <laughs> not on that list. Theater is a, it's an art form that requires a little bit more control yeah. than a city is kind of comfortable with. It's like, yeah. you know, theaters, theater productions have to be done on like a kind of collective willpower together, mm. you know. I have no idea how the theater scene is going to survive here. I, again, am I'm probably projecting, but in the extended segments of archival footage of the balls in uh, the Sons of Tennessee Williams, especially the backstage preparation stuff and the rehearsal stuff, uh, the costume making, the gown making, uh, and also in the interviews. Less so in the interviews. I feel like I watch it, and I feel like there's a sense in which these men, um, none of whom I could name by name, 
they were all really delightful to spend time with, but I wouldn't be able to say, you know, Sam said this and Fred said that. I was going to ask you if you knew any of them. No, I actually don't. I, I, I am more disconnected from the broad community than I seem to be. Well, I, I didn't recognize them either, and I no. just kind of, I wasn't sure if they had picked three people, because they were average or because they were exceptional. I wasn't sure where they fit into their own community. Either. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not part of the crew community. I got the sense that there is a level on which they realize that what they're doing is silly. And and that might, again, be projecting my attitudes onto them. They may feel no such thing. But there is just an inherent silliness that is either off-putting if you're in a bad mood or endearing and ennobling if you're in a good mood because they are just so intent on making this silly thing as complete and beautiful as possible. Yeah, I could sense some of the people had different... Agendas isn't the right word, but they there a lot Motives. of those people had they were getting different things out of it, and some right. people were going like there were several offhand jabs, I guess you'd say, where you heard one of the fussier people put you know in the costuming backstage mm. saying like, "Oh, we're not going for camp, honey." Right. Like camp was like a dirty word, or like we're done with the whole camp thing or whatever. And you get the sense that there are some people who are in it for the laughs. It's all satirical for them, right. like, and then there are other people who are like, "No, this is this is Miss America. We're yeah. gonna make this as serious and humorless as Miss America is." And then other people are doing it for like self-expression reasons, right. or like that person whose first time it was, and all that. Like, so it seems like there's a lot of ways you can come at yeah. it. Yeah, there's never one reason for anyone doing anything. There's usually a multiplicity of reasons. Can, can I ask there, you? Uh, let, let me just toss this in the mic, and then yes. In what is my new favorite quote, I only encountered it about three years ago, although I'm sure he said it 30 years ago. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. said, apropos of what, I don't know. He said, uh, we were put on this earth to fart around and don't let anyone tell you different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kurt Vonnegut's the best. The crew system, the ball system, gay or not gay, is just magnificent farting around it just really is and some of it gives me the creeps the uptown balls like that whole debutante yeah. thing is chilling to me yeah. like it's there's a great documentary called by invitation only where a young debutante who was not into it was kind of forced to do it and so she filmed it all and made a documentary kind of without permission and it's like these secret balls that like i'll have to see if i can track this down i've got a link i'll share it with you if you want it's great really it's almost like a cattle call the way mm. they do it in that context you yeah. know very much a kind of parading our daughters to the highest bidder kind yeah. of thing you know um i've w wondered what your relationship with mardi gras is in general um did you i i've usually worked i've really mm -hmm. only been out of the hospitality industry about two years right just on a personal level do you on, on a personal level the only i i mean it meant a huge amount to me when I first visited in the 80s, of course. They had the same shock that everybody has when they encounter Mardi Gras for the first time. Since I didn't return to the city until I was deep into my 40s, I am one of those guys who is wary of most of the most crowded situations, unless I'm entertaining guests. 
So I will go out on Mardi Gras Day and a couple of the neighborhood parades. But you don't you you said you don't belong to a crew? No, 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 no. I did for one year and it was kind of as you said, politics ridden and expensive and I didn't stick with it. I think you're just not a joiner type. I think that's probably true. <laughs> Most of my life is so internal that in a serious way it I I don't know why I want to be in New Orleans because I could do what I do anywhere. But I do want to be in New Orleans, even if I don't particularly connect with what makes it most valuable. Gay Easter Parade is way more big a deal to me. That That's the throwaway to, I like to use that expression again. <laughs> the Keister Parade. Yeah, the, the Gay Easter Parade is the level of public celebration that I'm comfortable with, not the enormity of Mardi Gras. The neighborhood parades, the day itself, a couple of other things, those I'll enjoy. Uh, but honestly, a, a better answer is simply that I usually worked. You know, I was usually working through Mardi Gras, so I didn't enjoy much of it, whether I was trying to or not. The first carnival after Katrina sticks in my mind. It was, that was very special. Yeah, I moved here about six months after that. Yeah, yeah. That was the probably actually the last one that I was fully part of for the entirety of it. Since then, it's been hit and miss, depending on my job schedule. I've been told by many people that that was the best Mardi Gras ever. It was. It had almost no tourism. Yeah. It was all locals, and everyone had a deep appreciation yeah. for life. It got through even to me, and as you pointed out, I tend to be pretty removed from most of it. The thing I want to say, since this is where we started from, is uh, for anyone who's listening to this, is that Sons of Tennessee Williams is just... a Deeply lovely movie, and very manifestly the work of, of one man's dedication. It doesn't make the case that the gay Mardi Gras cruise had an effect beyond the boundaries of New Orleans. <laughs> well, at least I don't think it does. Yeah, I don't think it's trying to, really. No, but it doesn't need to make that case to justify you spending time with it. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the whole idea of having to justify the movie or justify New yeah. Orleans' existence to the outside world, I think, is yeah. an absurd question because you don't need to justify yeah. things we, like that. We celebrate our insularity. <laughs> we celebrate. Over a culture unto ourselves, yeah. and that has given us a great resourcefulness yeah. as a community and a great you know, yeah. strength as a, as a culture. Yeah. You know, they, people talk about the roots going deep here. It's entirely because of that insularity. Yeah. You know? And it's also, it's just not a life for everyone. Right. You know? No. I, whenever anyone says to me, I think it's time to go, I say to them, you're probably right. I, I never, anyone who is starting to think that this town is too difficult to live in is almost always correct. I, I, don't, I don't ever urge anyone who's feeling trepidatious about it to stay. It's, it's very hard. Someone said to me, I, f I feel like I, I, I have to leave, and I said, go with your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's not. I mean, I tried to leave here twice, as I said, when what was theoretically the prime of my life. And, I, you know, I just, the town whipped my ass. Do you find the theater <laughs> work here more fulfilling, a little more diverse or more uh, it, It's not, it, I'm going to, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's an apples to oranges. Okay. I, 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 I create. No, so, that's fair. I, that's I create totally so fair. much of my own projects that it, it's not really. With the exception of Noises Off six months ago, eight months ago, it had been ages since I'd been cast in a, a main stage production 
the existence of which I wasn't responsible for. So I got a question that um, has, if this is one of the top three most common questions about Launch Day. Okay. People love your performance in it. They always want to know. I tell them how you took that character and I made it your own. I did a very good job for you, but okay. Oh, you did great. You did All right. great. And All right. people always want to say, like, why, <laughs> why French-Canadian? I don't know because I'm terrible <laughs> at accents. Um, wh- I don't even remember if I remember my rationale anymore because that was however many years ago. Trente Sue, it had something to do with Trente Sue, Serge. Why did I approach it that way? I am going to say, and I might be rewriting my history. I could well be rewriting my history because I, 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 it seems to me that I had a more substantial reason than this. But in retrospect, I believe my basic reason was that I thought it would be funnier. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know that it was more than that. That if I was playing a downtrodden dandy who everybody kind of amusedly put up with, that some kind of phony French accent was called for. Um, and that I would have an escape hatch in that I wouldn't be very good at it because it would be as performative, I guess, as his outfit. Right. Um, but I was going to say he wasn't a dandy till you took the role. True. I don't, <laughs> I, I never did meet or see the man that you modeled him on. Oh, he's still, he's still around. Yeah. Although in the pandemic, I don't know, but he, he was still around. Yeah. Yeah, I I wasn't happy about that anyway, as you know. I didn't want to play a close inspiration to anyone who was still alive. Yeah, no, that, and I thought you were you were dead on correct to yeah. bring that up because yeah. it was it's one of those weird oversights. But in the panic into production and all the juggling of things, I completely forgot to change his name. Yeah, and so that you caught that oversight for me and did me a huge favor by coming up with this creating this, this story, was, backstory, was, new name, everything. Yeah, it was totally from need. I found Trente Sue as a small coin first, went to Sergei from that, and then built out from, I essentially oh, built... Oh, yeah, because right, two-quarters George, so right, yeah. two-quarters to Trente, yeah. and then, okay, to Sergei. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I basically built out the character's look and voice from his name. <laughs> <laughs> I started... <laughs> well, it'd be happy to know no one's ever said, that guy really... Knock me out of the movies, or two over the top, or whatever. You fit right in the fabric of that. Film. <laughs> That's good, because <laughs> I look at it and it seems very fakey to me. But he's a fakey guy, so that's probably. I mean, there are a lot of performative types in this. Area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. People love to walk up and down the street. You know, that movie's become a time capsule. It's got, you know, Uncle Lionel in the background mm. in one shot, and, mm. and Mr. Okra and Angie and Adams. Every time I see Veronica, I mm. stare for a moment. Yeah. That was heartbreaking. That yeah. was just out of nowhere. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for talking about this great movie, bringing it to my movie. attention. Yeah. Listeners can watch the film on Vimeo On Demand. It seems to be the best version out there. It's a three-buck rental, and it's HD quality. Yeah, it's also available on iTunes indefinitely. It's time on Vimeo might be limited. I'm not sure. Okay, So cool. iTunes is a backup. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.